everyone. Welcome to Semester 3, Episode 7 of our Just Admitted podcast, where former deans and directors of admission give expert insight into the complex higher ed landscape. I'm Christine, a former assistant director of admissions at Yale and Georgetown Universities. And joining me today is my Ivy Wise friend and colleague, June, who was an MD admissions officer at Stanford University School of Medicine and pre-medical pre-health advisor at UC Berkeley. Wow, this is a great experience. And in this episode, we are going to discuss how medical school applicants can prepare for interviews. I am so excited, June, that you are here to talk about this process. I know that there are so many students who are interested in medicine. I work more on the higher um, high school end, you know, helping students to go into the right college. But so much of our discussion, even at the high school level, is about what they want to do. And there's so many students who want to be doctors, mm-hmm. which is a very noble profession, obviously. So Let's dive into our conversation. Um, maybe you can just share a little bit with us um, your background and experience. I write out, you know, your very professional yeah. and very impressive, you know, um, experience working at Stanford and UC Berkeley. But maybe you can just share a little bit more of your own personal background as well um, with medical school experience and, of course, your professional experience as well. Sure. Um, I didn't plan to be involved in medical school admissions after graduate school, but up until then I was working with middle school, high school students, as well as undergraduates, and I had never worked with an older student population before. And so uh, this opportunity at Stanford Med School opened up, I was hired, and I think I've been in admissions for close to 20 years now. So it's been a while. Um, I've seen, obviously, the changes. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, I have that experience um, with pre-medical advising for undergraduates, uh, as well as alumni. And so um, I'm probably the uncommon person in the sense of having both experiences, because I think a lot of times um, individuals may not always have the admissions uh, experience as uh, an advisor. So I, I see sort of both sides of the table, so to speak, um, at the same time. That's very cool. I mean, something that you just mentioned that's uh, very interesting to me is I've been in higher ed for, um, you know, 20 years and I've seen a lot of shifts in the college admission side. And you mentioned that you've been doing medical school admissions or advising for two decades and more. Um, what would be like one or two major shifts that you've observed, like, let's say 20 years ago compared to today? Um, <laughs> well, I remember when our office was paper. That's <laughs> we used to copy everything. So, uh, that was one thing that was major, uh, just the technology has changed. Mm-hmm. And with COVID occurring this last year and a half, uh, interviews, for example, are now online. Now, I don't know whether or not uh, medical schools down the road will continue with virtual interviews or mm-hmm. will want students back on campus. Maybe it might be a hybrid. I'm, I'm not sure how it's going right. to work out. Mm-hmm. But um I've always, maybe it's the old school in me. Uh, I would rather be in person than do the virtual, but uh, I know it's necessary at this time uh, in, you know, in our country and in the world. So uh, that's important to keep everyone safe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just even uh, again, I'm 
very much in my niche in um, you know the college undergraduate um, admissions experience, but some of the conversation has been about access through the virtual opportunities. Um, that even after the pandemic, some level of that virtual, um, you know, for undergraduate admissions, it's presentations. Yes, it is also for interviews with students um, and school visits. Even allows um, admission officers to go to more remote parts that they couldn't previously travel to, and vice versa for students um, from different backgrounds that may not have had an opportunity in the past to visit um, a place on campus to have some access and more level information. Um, at the same time, we all recognize there's something really neat about seeing someone, you know, in you know, person to person. You know, I are kind of doing this virtually now, which is great, um, but there's a slightly different synergy too uh, in person. So it would be interesting to see how that moves forward um, at the medical school level as well. Yeah. Um, just to throw out a, a general question, um, could you maybe just help our listeners to kind of think through the medical school application timeline? Um, and now I know um, our podcast um, has a range of listeners. Uh, there might be some high school students, even younger. We've done like um, Y Star, which is our middle school program. So we have some really young audiences and parents. Um, and there also may be some very specific uh, college students who are listening to this. They're thinking about medical school, uh, maybe even some graduates who might be thinking doing a postdoc. Um, so specialists who are ready to apply to medical school and, you know, younger students who are aspiring to become doctors. So could you maybe, um, you know, lay out the the, uh, the process, the timeline, the different components for, for that general audience? Um, and then if you want to dive more specifically to maybe that college senior who's thinking about, like, how do I get started? You know, yeah, sure. um, the process is roughly a year long. Yeah. So um, you would start applying, which I think as a high school student, you're familiar with the term primary application, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's what medical students have to complete. And that begins in June. And every medical school has different deadline dates for that primary application to be submitted. And it's typically from June, maybe end of May to about the beginning of November. Mm -hmm. That's the primary. And then once a medical school receives your primary, then you will get a secondary or sometimes it's called supplementary application. And that's the medical school's application. So basically, why are you applying here? Uh, How can we help you with your career goals and aspirations? Those type of questions will be on a secondary. And then after that uh, will be the interview process. And so some schools have already started interviewing for next fall. And so uh, the interviews will probably go until, you know, late February, March at the very latest. Uh, Everybody who applies this cycle will find out at the latest, I would imagine, end of April of a final decision whether they were accepted, not accepted uh, into the medical school or waitlisted. And then you start med school. Uh, depending on whether it's a semester or quarter system, maybe end of August, end of September, uh, next fall. And so that's in, in, a, in a nutshell. Uh, I think if you're, think, you know, you're a younger student, what you're doing in high school really will not have an influence on med school. Um, I guess the big difference is that when you're applying to med school, The letters of recommendations that I'm reading are much more robust. Uh, Typically, an applicant has been committed 
to an activity, for example, for maybe several years. And so their supervisor who PI, their research uh, you know, principal investigator, can write a really robust letter recommendation uh, for them. And so I get a better sense of the applicant um, versus maybe a year in an English class in high school or something like that. So that, those things are different uh, with regards to med school. I do encourage, and I always tell prospective applicants, to apply when they think they will be the strongest applicant. Uh, it is tough to be accepted as a reapplicant to medical school because number one, med schools know you're in a reapplicant and they're going to want to see something significantly different in your second application versus your first. So um, try your best to apply when you think you're the strongest applicant. Um, you really only hopefully go through this process once. Uh, not only is it time consuming and draining, but it can be expensive. Um, and I say can now because of COVID, uh, a lot of times you, you are not traveling to a medical school for an in-person interview now. You're just figuring out the time, log on, and there's your interview. And so you're saving a lot of money right now. Um, that may not be the case in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's that's really helpful to kind of think about. And it's um, that kind of reapplication process. I know that we advise um, high school students the same, that some students ask, you know, should I reapply it? And the answer is, well, you're, you want to apply when you're most ready. And typically that is, um, at least for high school students mm -hmm. applying to college that senior year. Um, for medical school, then do you, because I know I've heard of um, post-baccalaureate, uh, you know, baccalaureate programs where it's, yeah, post-pack, where they um, would do fulfill medical school requirements that they did. Would you say that's the case, you know, if you're a senior in college or fourth year student in college and you're ready to graduate and apply, you have all of your requirements and your recommendations, you're ready, that's the best time. But if not, and you need to do additional research or additional coursework, that it's okay to kind of that take that additional year or two to get stronger as an applicant and then apply to medical school? Yeah, um, I think when I started uh, in admissions, it was a younger um, age that uh, were the first year med students, maybe really close to uh, just graduating from college, 21, 22. I think over the years, the average age of an incoming med school class has now gone up to about 24, 25. Oh, interesting. So okay. Now, obviously, in those couple of years, people might be doing biotech. They might be working for a biotech. They might be doing research, uh, Peace Corps, things of that nature. So you really want to uh, consider areas of your application that you feel you need to strengthen or enhance. Go do it and then apply to med school uh, in order to uh, obviously be at least in the eyes of a med school, be a stronger applicant. Uh, it's not as simple as grades and the MCAT test, right? Yeah, right. If it was, then a computer could do my job. Right. That's actually um, my my kind of follow-up question, kind of thinking through the rubric for medical school admission, what components to you, I, I know it's a holistic process, it's not just grades and test scores and all that, um, but from your perspective, what 
what, you know, what are some things that for you that could make an applicant stand out? Um, and also going back to your point about the kind of um, having uh, first year medical students that are older now, because I, you know, again, my just general knowledge of the uh, the business school application process, for an example, where um, there's traditionally has been a general preference for, you know, applicants who have worked in industry or some other capacity. So coming in with work experience, whereas other graduate programs, you know, perhaps a PhD program in something or medical school or even law school, where you see much more of the direct from undergrad to grad school. So do you sense that students have something of value to bring if they come in with what you just mentioned, for instance, some industry work experience or even taking a volunteer? Year, year to you know go to Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or you know or even um, some international experience. Does that enhance in some ways their what they bring to medical school? So the rubric and then specifically you know beyond the traditional components that we think of in the medical school application. Do you think that students um, add something to the community if they come in with you know some non traditional experience or work experience? Sure, um, absolutely. Um, I think. Taking time off, whether that's a year or two years, I know at 21, I could remember, gosh, you know, I should be this or that by this age. And that's not how life goes. Mm -hmm. You know, life is not... um, Totally linear. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, things happen. And I think taking time off to do or to pursue whatever passion it is that you have, or um, you want to complete um, something that you started as an undergrad. There have been applicants that have taken some time off to complete that project or whatever it is. Um, It actually, I think, helps the applicant to confirm that this is the right helping career I want to pursue, Mm -hmm. because medicine is a helping career. Mm-hmm. But what's really unique about being a physician that you cannot find the same satisfaction being a firefighter mm-hmm. or a teacher or, you know, a counselor or minister. These are all helping careers. Mm-hmm. And so those uh, experiences, I think, really help the applicant more than not necessarily the school, because mm-hmm. I can't really... I can't tell the difference between volunteering at one hospital and another hospital. It's kind of the same to me, but to the applicant, that might be a quite different experience for them. And they say, yes, this is what I want to do. I don't want to be a nurse or whatever it is. Right. In terms of the application, what I've found over the years that has been, at least for me, very, very helpful with regards to the rubric is the letters of recommendation. Um, I have read those that jump off the page and I can visualize this applicant doing whatever it is. And I know that that letter writer knows this applicant very, very well. And unfortunately, there's the other side of the spectrum. I do not know this applicant. They received the AMI class and therefore will be a great doctor. Right. Yeah. Um, I think if you're a younger student, uh, it would be a good idea to consider doing or setting up career interviews with physicians. Mm-hmm. So a physician who's a dermatologist, mm-hmm. that lifestyle is quite different from a surgeon. Um, yeah. 
If you're a male or versus female, if your plans are to have a family down the road, there, there's a lot of considerations that um, the different specializations have. So I would encourage uh, a younger person to, you know, you never know who Uncle Bob might know. And just talk to your family and your friends to see if they have a physician friend that you can um, do a career informational interview with and ask him or her, you know, what inspired them to become a physician? What are some of the challenges and how come you're still satisfied? And even with this past year and a half with COVID, the challenges of that, you know, depending on their specialization. But for me, like I said earlier, it's always been um, letters of rec that have had an influence on me. Um, and then, of course, the duration and intensity of experiences. How long has an applicant participated in an activity and how many hours a week have been, have they been committing to it? Yeah, that's so that's so great. And I really appreciate that. Um, I'm just thinking even, um, you know, my own friends who are, you know, um, surgeons from to pediatricians to um, primary care physicians, location manners, ophthalmologists, you know, it's so Mm -hmm. it's great to just interview because I know students, um, you know, they have really good heart and they want to help, they want to heal, but it, you know, kind of the nitty gritties and even the medical, right, of the training, um, depending on your specialty, the residency, the post- (laughs) you know, the fellowships that you do. So you could, you know, be 10 years, 12 years in training before you're practicing really, you know, coming out within six, seven years and practicing. So um, all those really great things to kind of think through, um, you know, for students, especially college students who are thinking about that. Um, Two follow-up questions too related to the rubric and um, forgive me if I'm coming a little bit um, more from my undergrad, um, you know, admissions uh, lens here. One is I get questions a lot from high school students thinking about, you know, medical school. Um, Do I have to be a biology major, for instance, right? To be a STEM major in order to be successful in the medical school process. And so maybe you can speak to that. Um, And the other big one, um, again, my um, undergrad uh, bias here, lens here, um, testing. So uh, we are seeing a lot of testing changes at the undergraduate level or applying to um, undergraduate level. So what about NCAT? Um, what are some changes or not changes that you're seeing for medical school uh, application process related to kind of MCAT and other requirements? Yeah, with regards to the major, I've always encouraged students mm-hmm. to pursue the major that was the most interesting to them. Uh, a medical school does not prefer a an applicant who is your STEM or science major over a non-science major, humanities, social science. Um, I think the challenging part of being a non-science major is fitting in the science prereqs. So that's something that's changed a little for some med schools. They have no prereqs. And other med schools still have prereqs, which is typically a year of physics, um, a year of biology, two years of chemistry. Uh, those are really the prereqs. And so those really, you have to take those type of courses if you're a science major in general, but as an art major, you don't have to take physics. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, or chemistry, two years. <laughs> Your major. Um, it always made me sort of stop and 
pay attention to an applicant when I saw a non-science major, because I was really trying to understand, hmm, they are this major, how are they fitting medicine into it? So for example, uh, there were some English majors over the years, and I'm, I sort of remember one who had this idea of becoming a doctor and author down the road. So that was what was on their mind and why they chose English as a major. Um, I can't remember, of course, that they were successful in the application process, but that did stand out for me. I was trying to understand that. But um, the advantage, I think, to being a science major, let's say you were biochem, because you were a biochem major, there might be a possibility you could um, not have to take some classes in med school that are required because you were a biochem major and it was already fulfilled. So... You know, in the end, I think it's just important if drama or biology or chemistry or art is your thing, go use that as your major. And I think that's one of the urban myths out there that you have to be a science major. You you do not have to be a science major. You do not even have to go and graduate from well-known schools to be accepted to a med school. I, I know that when I was at Stanford, uh, there were some small liberal arts colleges in the middle of the country I never heard of, and we accepted them. Um, so it was fine. Great. That's so good to hear. I feel like I'm telling the students the right advice, and I'll say <laughs> June said that's true. I have a Stanford Medical School admissions officer said you can pursue your passion, um, but be prepared, obviously, but you can pursue your passion. Um, what about MCAT? Do you have any thoughts on it? Um, I think with COVID this past year, uh, there were some schools that made it optional. Uh, I don't know if they're going to continue that down the road, but uh, typically that will probably be still part of the process. Uh, I can't imagine a school completely getting rid of it, but that is a possibility. Um, The MCAT and your GPA, yes, they are just a part of the application. So I think some other Uh, You know, going back to that rubric, something that applicants should consider is leadership. And I don't mean leadership in the sense of being the president of your pre-med club, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of us have worked with people who are the so-called leaders and have not really done a whole lot for the organization. And you have a regular member who's moving it forward. Right. When I mention leadership, I'm talking about the characteristics. How do you identify a problem, whether that's in the laboratory, if you're doing research in your community, on campus, and what sort of initiative are you taking up to um, find an answer to this problem? And maybe you might have left your legacy there. And that's really hard to do. That's not yeah, easy yeah. to do. But that's, uh, I think, another thing a lot of schools are seeing, especially top-tier med schools. I think there's an expectation that if you're expected, if you're accepted and you graduate, we expect you to be a leader in the field of medicine down the road. 
that's a really helpful, you know, um, helpful thing to think about. And especially it's not just a title or position, but it's what you, what you could do for the field. I know when I was going through my graduate studies is a lot about, you know, your research making an impact, right? How are you contributing to the existing body of knowledge? So kind of thinking along the lines of how can I contribute to the field of medicine? Mm -hmm. Um, how can I bring it forward? Um, and so in whatever capacity, whether it's research or some other areas, um, yeah, that's super helpful to, to kind of think about. I was also thinking too, as I know, um, just from, I, I don't, uh, maybe some medical school, I don't know if it's all medical school, but there is a sense of just um, the kind of holistic care. I know a lot of my friend doctors who talk about, you know, um, the patient um, interaction and care that sometimes, um, you know, you, you can say it bedside manners or whatever interaction with patients, but that is really important as well. So communication skills, um, uh, social skills in, in um, you know, someone who trained to be a physician. So um, those softer skills are also very important. I think, you know, in the field of medicine, and I'm sure that is, you know, that kind of, you know, impact that you would have leadership, softer skills are part of that holistic process. Oh, sure, yeah. Cultural competence with yep. you, yes, marginalized communities. Absolutely. Yep. That kind of um, leads into uh, like the interview process. Yes. So yeah. For many med schools, it was always traditional, right? One-on-one -on -one with a med school faculty member and probably a med student. Um, they would be either open or blind. So open the faculty member, read your application before your interview. Uh, a blind one, all they know is your name and maybe your MCAS ID number. So uh, that interview could be a little tougher because you've got to, um, communicate and convey who you are and why medicine, as opposed to the interviewer and be a, being able to read your personal statement. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's the open and close. And now a lot of medical schools, and it's not limited to just med schools, but it could be some nursing programs, dental schools, et cetera, other allied health programs have moved to the MMI or the multiple mini interview. Um, the easiest way to describe it is sort of like um, uh, you're going into different rooms for about eight minutes at a time with a different question or scenario and you're meeting with someone different. So it's like speed dating, I think. That's what a lot of kids have described it as. Uh, and so, Oftentimes, the interviewer is not really interviewing. They are just listening to your answer mm -hmm. uh, for eight minutes. And it's that question or that scenario before you enter the room. And it's not just that either. Uh, as you mentioned earlier about communication skills, part of the MMI, there are some schools that use an actor. So mm -hmm. your scenario might be, your coworker and you have to go flying somewhere, but your coworker is afraid of flying. How do you help him or her deal with that anxiety? So the interviewer is just observing you to see if you have empathy. You don't suddenly have empathy on the day of your medical school interview. That's a lifelong process <laughs> of developing, right? And then there's the teamwork piece where you and another applicant 
or I should say interviewee at the same time are working on a problem. And uh, the two interviewers are observing you. And one is observing a person giving instructions and the other is observing the other person who's receiving instructions. And how are you communicating is really what they're looking at. Yeah. The applicant getting frustrated and yelling at the other applicant, that's not going to be a good look, right? So um, the MMI is a really interesting format in terms of the interviews. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of uh, applicants probably are familiar with it now, as opposed to five, six years ago when it really first started. But um, in either case, whether it's traditional or the MMI and some med schools, and this applies to both allopathic and osteopathic med schools. Mm -hmm. um, some med schools might do a panel. And so it's like you and three other applicants at the same time answering questions to yeah. Yeah. Uh, faculty. Um, that's rare. That really doesn't happen a lot, but it can for a school. I think in order to prepare, you want to make sure you go over your application again, especially the secondary application for that particular school. What were your answers to their questions? You want to know that. Be prepared to um, answer any questions that an interviewer may bring up, especially if it's an open interview. He or she has read your entire application. So whatever is in there, it is on. They can ask you anything that yeah. you put in there, right? Versus a blind interview. Yeah. And so it's really important for you to review your answers to that particular school um, and why um, you're applying and why you think you're a good fit for that school. But, um, you know, do your best to be yourself. I know it's a, it's a, a high risk day yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people are obviously nervous, but understand that the interviewers and the medical school will do their very best to help you feel comfortable that day so mm -hmm. that you can shine. I think if you reach the point where you're being interviewed, you have a very, very good chance of being accepted into the med school. Um, the biggest hurdle is getting past the secondary and the invitation to the med school. That's really the biggest hurdle. Yeah. And once you get that interview to uh, invitation to interview, um, you've uh, got a really great chance unless you completely blow your interview day, like you're late to an interview or something. Don't be late. <laughs> so don't be late. late. Don't <laughs> use bad words. Right, right. Be personal, be likable. <laughs> you know, one thing I think, uh, you know, be professional. I think that's one thing as a younger student I kind of picked up on is, they hear the word professional, but I don't think they truly understand it's not just the way you dress, but it's your behavior as well. I mean, I'm sure you've received emails that start out with, hey, and you really don't want to address, especially somebody in a med school you know, or admissions office with, hey, you know, be, be proper when you're interview when you're sending an interview or interacting with somebody. So um, these are some things that uh, I've picked on uh, with maybe some younger students. And that's where I think if you've taken time off to, to work or volunteer, 
uh, you're exposed to uh, a, a different kind of population of people that have had years of experience and might be able to mentor you or give you some insight into your behavior or whatever the case may be. That's such a good point. I feel like um, we have discussed this indirectly and directly in a variety of stages of, you know, kind of um, uh, working with students. I know with even our middle school portion uh, in our Y-Start program, we talk about self-advocacy, but even just um, kind of developing these softer or interpersonal skills, including emails. And that's true for high school students. I absolutely get, you know, when you get an email that starts with, hey, mm-hmm. uh, and then you're like, okay, do I, you know, how yeah. much or the teacher in high school, you talk about recommendations, like writing, hey, to a professor. Right. You know, and that applies to college, you know, students and your interactions and relationship and that goes on to medical school. And, you know, so it really is important, um, you know, our forms of communication, whether it's written, uh, even in something like an email, which seems, I think, sometimes informal because we're, you know, kind of in this digital world now um, to more formal settings like an interview, whether it's Zoom or in person that, you know, kind of learning these skills um, that just really important. So, um, you know, students who um, you're listening, if you're younger, it's still, <laughs> you can still prepare on these skills and including older students who are graduates and all that. Um, those are really important. Uh, this brings me to actually a good question because you're noting some kind of uh, things that may have, um, does it, you know, just maybe the student's not putting their best foot forward. So what are some common errors you may have witnessed either as an admissions officer or as a medical, you know, advisor, pre-med uh, advisor that you wish, you know, like uh, if I had my list of five things I really would recommend students to be really careful about. What would you say these common um, errors that students make? Well, you know, that's kind of an interesting question because in admissions on the day of interviews, for example, obviously students being invited to interview at Stanford Med School, they're pretty like, you know, professional, Uh, they know exactly what it is, why they want to be a doctor and express and convey and communicate all of that to everybody. So there was one, I think, incident years ago. Um, At the end of an interview day, oftentimes there's a wrap-up. And so the school um, admissions officer, somebody will inform the applicants, okay, this is what we'll accept as an update. This is how long it will take before you hear back from us of a final decision, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in this particular case, it was really late in the day, maybe about 6.30 p.m. And there were two uh, applicants I was waiting for, and it just happened to be a young man and a young woman. And I don't know if the young man was um, uh, interested in the young woman, uh, but he was definitely coming across in a way where he wanted to, I guess in his mind, um, he thought he was, uh, what is the word I'm thinking of? Uh, anyways, he had a cast on his arm and I asked him if he broke it doing something like skiing because it was in the winter. Yep. And he, he starts telling me he got in a bar fight. Oh, it was impressive. Like, I don't know if he was trying to impress the young lady. Yeah. Bring the wrap up because it was only the three of us. And he was talking to me 
as if I was his best friend and we were in a bar having beer. And I was, it was completely inappropriate. In the, and I was looking at her face and she was shell-shocked. I could see the expression on her face. He couldn't because he was leaning towards me, you know, telling me all this stuff. And, and it wasn't just his behavior, but he was also cussing as he was talking to me. What I mean, like his buddy or his best friend. And so I even had to write a note about his behavior that day. And I was concerned about that. Um, So, you know, that was an example of not being professional. Right. So, um, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't typically see many situations or I haven't seen many situations where um, it's been a, you know, a problem uh, but I do try to prep students as they're preparing for yeah. um, an interview, what to look out for, what not to do, be on time, those type yeah. of things. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And I think that's, you know, to me, um, I, I've said to students in different contexts, you know, and in, in, in college admissions, it's that I call it the like ability test. You know, you're imagining someone who's, you know, a roommate or someone who's on campus. Is this person likable? That's, you know, you could be the most brilliant in X, Y, and Z, but if you're not, you know, collaborator or someone who, you know, gets along well, behavioral issues, um, you know, appropriateness, you know, all sorts of alarm bells is going off in the admissions yeah. mind. So those are, um, yeah, that's a great kind of check to say, like, how do I present myself um, either in person or in interview setting in paper? And certainly I think it's not just that the process itself, too. You mentioned earlier how important the recommendations are. So it's that kind of the relationship you have with someone, you know, like a mentor or a professor over an extended period that's also reflected um, in their recommendation letters. You know, that's, I think, advantage of the MMI Mm-hmm. You might be nervous in your first two rooms, but as you progress, you become more comfortable and it it's the wisdom of the crowd. Yeah. People get together and it's pretty amazing how they score an applicant mm-hmm. and how they feel about a particular applicant. And it's 10 different questions. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's really amazing to, to see that. So uh, at least in the MMI, I think, you know, th- those first two where you're stumbling and you're still nervous, you still have seven, eight more to go through and you'll be like a pro by the end. Hopefully. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. Um, and they, you know, hopefully they get to work on someone like you who can help them, you know, yeah. the process and not feel as daunted by it all. Um, any final advice for, you know, listeners, um, whether it's someone younger or someone, a college, you know, fourth year who's applying right now? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, always apply early, sooner than later. I think if you are invited to interview, then definitely consider uh, setting up a um, mock interview, uh, preferably with someone who is not a family member. (laughs) I think what happens oftentimes is they are not or can't be brutally honest with you. And you, you need that at that point in time. Yeah. So um, those uh, those would be just the two things off the top of my head that I could think about uh, immediately. But um, apply when you think you're the strongest applicant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, two or 
three years off in the whole scheme of life is not really significant, but what sort of insight do you gain about yourself in those two years of taking off and your maturity level, et cetera? Uh, I think that's more important than retiring at 65 as a physician to 63, right? <laughs> that's not a big deal. Um, so consider that and do your best to not have you know, family or friends pressuring you and, and try your best not to compare yourself to your peers. Just worry about your own um, application, your own strengths, and what you can contribute to the diversity of the class. And when I say diversity, I mean it in the broadest sense. Job, you know, your, your unique perspective, uh, maybe immigrating from a different country, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. That's such great advice. Yeah, I, I think that's it's such to me. Um, I did not go to medical school, but I have you know friends who did, and such an investment. It's such a rewarding, um, noble profession, like I said earlier. But it's a lot of investment. Four years of medical school, and then all the training that comes after. So um, yes, be be sure you know do the interviews, uh, research well, and then um, and apply when you're the most ready. Um, it, I think it is you know uh, definitely a a rewarding career, but also a long commitment <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think lastly, and you know, my mantra that I've yeah. always told students is no news is good news. <laughs> You're back from my admissions office. There is no final decision yet. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much, June. You are so wise and it's so um, enjoyable to talk with you and um, I've learned so much. So thank you all listeners for tuning in to Just Admit It. Catch up on all of our previous episodes by visiting our podcast page and be sure to bookmark our Ivy Wise knowledge base for additional help with navigating the complex and competitive college admissions process. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok for more college prep resources and stay tuned for our next episode in which we will share advice on what high school freshmen and sophomores should be doing now to stay on track with their college prep. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>